Michael, the uh, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I might have mentioned this before, but the um, uh, my wife gets the biggest kick. She says, like watching these YouTubes, um, that any listeners would all, all of a sudden know the inside of my uh, my right nostril. Because to start recording, I, I do this, right? And uh, she'll she'll say once in a while, like probably Larry, it's probably the same with you and Carrie and Michael with Bonnie. My Amy doesn't have that much interest in these podcasts, but she'll hear of something that you want to watch them. Then she sees the beginning that has me doing this mm-hmm. and she can't stop laughing. It just ruined the whole podcast for her. So those listening to us on Podbean. You're supposed to notice that part. <laughs> I just don't have the time to like edit it out so that the audio people listening, they wouldn't see it. But when we click on on, uh, nine out of 10 times, you can have, uh, it's almost like you can go spelunking in my right nostril. Um, yeah. So uh, it's Holy Week, and you just heard the uh, the yeah of our guest today, which is, I'm going to introduce him. It's just way, Michael would agree, it's way, way, way overdue. I consider our guest this morning, Larry Chap, a friend, as well as his wife, Carrie. We met um, a few years ago, probably six or seven at the Abbey of the Genesee when a good friend of theirs, Father John Gribwich, uh, was kind of tying into the Abbey. <clears throat> and uh, we had a wonderful conversation one day. We had individual conversations, Larry and I. And then with the abbot, Father Gerard D'Souza, Father Isaac Slater, uh, Larry and Carrie, I'll never forget just sitting around in one of the retreat houses talking about anything and everything. And then since that time, Larry, who's uh, um, just a huge footprint in the Rochester Diocese, you know, I mentioned our little graduate school of theology and ministry, St. Bernard's Institute, where I took a master's, but it's currently doing really neat things. And one of the reasons is that uh, the people who are driving that train, um, they all came or have connections to a little school in Western Pennsylvania called DeSales University. Eastern, and this thing Eastern a, Pennsylvania. Oh, thanks. Right, right. Yep. And um, DeSales, uh, between Larry and his sidekick, Rodney Hauser. Um, they just have these people to think, you know, I've had four kids go to St. Bonaventure and I'm not running it down, but the disproportionate influence that you guys have had producing some really great leaders and some great thinkers is wild. So we're welcoming uh, this morning, Larry Chap, and I, I'm doing it um, also because it is Holy Week. People who know Larry and his body of work know that resourceful theology, as well as in particular, the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar is very central to his work. And heading into Holy Week, we're going to dive into the subject, not staying there, we never stay on anything, but we're going to dive into the subject of Holy Saturday a little bit. And so at this point, uh, welcome, Larry, long overdue, good to see you. How are things going? Things are going great. Things are heating up here on the uh, Catholic Worker Farm, waiting for our dairy goats to give birth and be in milk and so on. So yeah, it's pretty busy blogging and videoing and doing all kinds of, I'm speaking gigs, traveling over the country, just got back from St. Mindred Seminary a couple of weeks. I head out to Benedictine College in Kansas. So I'm a busy boy, and uh, but I love it. I love it. And so uh, when you invited me to come on here, I had to make time for this because uh, I love you guys. It's, it's a great podcast. I listen, I listen to it all the time. Yeah. And, and yours, Larry, you 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 have had like you said, you're busy. You're 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 a big name. And I, I can I can <laughs> name 50 reasons why you should be. But like uh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you uh you had you're in demand. How do you, how do you kind of tell that story? You know that uh, maybe you had more free time and you could have always kind of had this trajectory, but uh, you know you're kind of not everywhere. But you're you're saying what you're saying is meeting 
a lot of people at this time say something about you're stepping away from your own experience. Comment on it a little bit. Yeah, to me, it's it's both exciting and a little bit sad. And I'll get to the sad part in a second. But yeah, I was 20 years, you know, from 1994 till about 2013, 2014. I was, you know, professor of theology at DeSales University, which is near Allentown, Pennsylvania, and devoted almost all of my energies to both teaching undergraduates, but then also high end scholarly work. I mean, public I've had publications in the Thomist and I'm not tuning my own horn, but I'm saying that was my focus. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had articles in Comunio, the Thomist and, and you know, modern theology, pro ecclesia, all these, you know, high end read by all of about three people, probably. But uh, high end. And, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's the thing. And I wrote this book on science and religion that was published by TNT Clark that I, you know, I think was per just by three guys in Singapore that hit the wrong button on Amazon or something, you know, and, and and then probably bought by some libraries devoted to the Jesuit religion and, uh, you know, whatever. And, and from there, so, you know, in about 2013, 14, after years and years of, I had lots of publications and yet my name wasn't really out there outside of communio circles, right? So I started this Catholic worker farm. Uh, I got kind of just tired of the academic thing and teaching. I wanted to do more of a Catholic worker thing. Michael Martin can certainly understand that. And uh, You just and, told my uh, life story, Larry. Yeah, yeah and, and, and so about three years ago then, I just, at the behest of former students, they said, you need, I hate blogs. I'm a Luddite. I don't read blogs. I, I thought my blog would last two months and then fizzle out. Uh, but it did. It struck a nerve and it went viral. And all of a sudden I got speaking engagements. I went on Robert Barron's show. I'm writing for Catholic World Report, National Catholic Register, you know, all kinds of things. And, and so it, it never ceases to amaze me and the emails that I get from people. And here's the, so this leads up then. Okay. So as many people now say, chap, you're now more influential in retirement than you were when you were an active teacher in the university. And that's true. And it, it only goes to show <clears throat> in many, many ways that the focus in the Catholic church on theologians and theology, though absolutely necessary, scholarly theology is absolutely necessary. I'm not arguing anti-intellectual nonsense here, but there needs to be a greater movement in the church. And I think you see this too with Ward on Fire and Bob Barron. There needs to be a greater movement in the church for theologians who know their stuff, who have paid their dues in the scholarly world to translate that stuff into a body of writing and videos that average educated Catholics can get their mind around. Mm -hmm. Here's the sad part to me. I just read today on Facebook, uh, the French bishops are introducing the cause of Henry de Lubac for, for sainthood. Hooray for them. A surprise move, but hooray for them. On this particular Facebook page I was reading, <laughs> there were several people that said, who is this? And, uh, oh, I had to Google this guy. Uh, yeah, okay. He's, oh, he was in the French resistance. Cool. And it really struck me. There is such, prof this is the sad part. The reason why my blog has gone a bit viral is to me, it's all boilerplate stuff. That's why I thought this blog would fail. But the fact is people know the rad trads. And people know the progressives, but people do not know, understand, comprehend, or even the slightest bit familiar, the major figures of what you mentioned earlier, Mike, Ressourcement Theologie, Communio Theologie. This was the theology of the council. This was the theology of Ratzinger and John Paul. This was the, the theology that was the greatest theology of the 20th century. And nobody knows about it. Okay. And that is pathetic and sad. 
And so, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for for saying, you know, that, uh, you know, it's filled a niche because there are many times when I want to throw in the towel because I'm tired mm-hmm. after three years of doing this. But I don't because I look out there at this landscape and say, holy cow, you know, the ignorance is astounding. Yeah. Larry, you said, you know, um, you said you would want more theologians to do this. And uh, I sure, I think a lot would be do it. But I'm going to say that you probably touching soil and touching animals art and allowed you to have a voice. I don't think most academics I know could actually transpose down. And I'm not saying dumb down. I just I think the problem isn't that they're not doing it, at least a, a big part. And I just put this out there for discussion would be, um, you know, Michael can speak to this more eloquently than I, but, um, you know, even Father Gerard, he looks at young people, uh, he's the abbot of the monastery, uh, Larry and I know him pretty well. I once brought a bunch of students over there, and in his presence, I think he was before he was elected abbot, he, um, he saw the anxiety epidemic that was besetting young people. He was, young people were just talking what is de rigueur for them, their everyday experience, and he was so puzzled by it. He and another monk, Brother Anthony, and Father Gerard, who's from India, said, uh, gosh, I think you just need to do something that offers resistance to your body. Put a shovel in the dirt to start yes. inhabiting your body. And I, I think that, you know, the, the the rustic language, the commonplace language, it can't just be transposed on Google Translate. I think, you know, maybe this Regeneration podcast, something we all have in common, is that we're embodied people who uh, we I don't think we could theologize without getting our our, our hands dirty. You, you guys talk on that one. You're both well, more yeah, involved. Let me, let me spit something out here. Um, so, you know, I, I, when Larry describes his experience, in academia, <laughs> I'm like, damn, amen, brother. Cause that's where I, that's exactly the experience I went through, right? Published yeah. a, this book through an academic press, probably had 17 readers because it was yeah. for $110. Then I remember yeah. it's dumb, and I have all these publications. Who am I talking to? I'm you're not doing I'm doing this. Am I really doing this for other academics? People I don't necessarily like, because that's what happens in in, in those theological circles. People talk to each other. They're not and and it's a, a kind of it's a it's a kind of I call it a mating ritual. <laughs> You know, it's like the, yeah, yeah. the courtship displays you see in birds and stuff, right? And, but it has nothing. To, it's not practical, and it's not it's not grounded in any way. Uh, and and I think in my own experience, right? And I think what when people are attracted to what I do, I, the primary reason they're attracted to is because my hands are in the soil, you know, and I, and I'm or yeah. or I'm reaching in upside inside of a goat to help her deliver a baby. Um. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it, and that's, and people, you know, here's the thing though, it's not just, you, you mentioned, mentioned uh, Bishop Barron, and I think another figure like Bishop Barron is uh, Jordan Peterson, who's not Catholic, but yeah. though he, I saw he went to the Latin Mass the other day. Somebody had a picture. Oh, He's yeah. looking like in a crowd, but, just kind of like Bishop Barron, you know, and it, well, both of those figures, the academics, Catholic academics in particular, get so snotty about them, like they don't deserve oh, a yeah. year, right? And oh yeah, I'm friends with I'm friends with Bishop Barron, and yeah, the garbage he takes from both the left and the right is astounding. It's astounding. 
Mm-hmm. He can't just be another smart voice in the crowd either. They have to like actually make him seem like a total ignoramus, right? Or evil. Well, yeah. And the thing is, especially for amongst the rad trads, the thing I often say is it's it's not that they f- fear that his evangelizing method will be unsuccessful. It's that they fear that it will be successful and is successful. Because ultimately what they disagree with, and I don't want to get too far at a tangent here, but it is somewhat related. Ultimately, it's not word on fire as such that they disagree with or the production of videos that they disagree with. It's his embracing of Vatican II and, and of the resourcement theologians like De Lubach and Balthazar once again. He, mm-hmm. He's a Balthazarian and he's a Vatican II guy. And they hate him for that. They absolutely hate him for that. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's just absolutely so ignorant that it beggars. But I'm coming back to Michael. Yeah, there, there's, you know, the academic profession is great and it's necessary. But my book on science and religion, which was called The God of Covenant Creation, uh, was essentially a dense Balthazarian Trinitarian ontology that built into a God world metaphysical relation that could then ground a science and religion dialogue. Science is a kind of cause, science of secondary causes and so on. And yeah, okay, fine. That And I'm glad I wrote it and I'm glad it's out there. And that kind of stuff is necessary. But seriously, I had a, I had a colleague of mine at DeSales University, a psychology professor, very smart guy, agnostic, Richard Knoll is his name. He started to read my book, got one chapter in, and he emailed me and said, who did you write this for? And is Richard Knoll, is he the guy who wrote the book on the young cult there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That Richard yeah, it's, it's a good book. It's a good book. I like young, good. but it's a good book. Oh, and he's a fascinating guy, a really yeah, yeah. interesting guy, fun, yeah, it's a good great, book. In, great interlocutor. And so on. you're Larry, yeah. who did you write this for? And I sat back and realized, I think I, I wrote it for the group of 500 theologians around the world uh, who could understand Balthazar and cared about Balthazarian metaphysics. And of that 500, maybe five actually read the book. <laughs> and yeah. you know, so that then made me realize, you know what, this people need to remember, for example, one of the most influential books of the 20th century in theology, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, began as a series of BBC radio broadcasts. Okay. It did not begin, it, you know, it wasn't part of his scholarly research, which he did. It was a series of BBC radio broadcasts and ended up being one of the most influential Christian books of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, theologians have, have really, in general, I mean, even intellectuals in general have lost the ability to speak a language that the common person understands. You know, and and yeah. and and the thing is, then the disdain is 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 aimed toward those who can't understand what you're talking about when you're speaking in such a specialized language, uh, and it's not your fault, <laughs> right? Right. What yeah, I think, and right. I think for me, that's right. What was fortunate for me is, you know, spending doing spending some time in the trenches as a as a school teacher, as one person who read my one of my books said, he goes, I can tell you to be a teacher because you explain things very clearly and without jargon, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I write so a 12-year-old could understand it. Yeah. And so that's what I did when I started uh, my blog. I didn't write it for the 12-year-old. I actually, when I wrote my blog, started my blog, I didn't write it with any audience in view at all. I'm writing it for this group or that group. I wrote it to simply say in common everyday words, what it was that was on my mind. 
not in other words, I, I didn't write toward anyone. I was simply, in a sense, writing for myself. I was writing myself into a deeper understanding of what it was I was writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, and we all do that, right? Yeah. So I just decided, I, oh, here's a theological problem I want to talk about. And I do a little bit of read, and then I would simply write in a very common way. And as the essays would evolve, I myself would come to a deeper insight into what was going on. And then I discovered that the end product was something that most people could understand and they really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that writing advice, you know, from the most personal to the most universal, right? Everybody, they try to please everybody and you're pleasing nobody, you know, so write. I'm always telling young people, write what's on and, you know, and it's going to take a while. I love Chesterton's advice, too, that if your first book sounded like Dickens, it's great. If your second one does, you know, that's embarrassment to you. But, um, (laughs) you know, but isn't that great? You know, it it takes a little bit, but more people need to find their voice. And on the other hand, in a world of mass culture, that unique voice, we all have to agree, is a rarer and rarer commodity. It is. And the other thing is my wife gave me a a great piece of advice. You know, Carrie, my wife. Yeah. She gave me a great piece of advice when I started the blog. She said, Larry, whatever you do, only write when you have something to say. Wow. And and, in other words, it's it's to avoid, you know, for example, I love Rod Dreher. I've always loved Mm -hmm. Rod Dreher. But uh, the, the downfall of blogs like Rod Dreyer's is that the, this constant feeling that you have to have an opinion on everything. And you have you to could be tell it was ruining his health, too. Right. Apart yeah. from like the mediocrity of some of the posts, his most of his blogs became about how w- the people who could read between the lines that blogging every day was ruining his life. Oh, yeah. Completely <laughs> dominating his life. And, yeah. and you know, ruin. And, and I also you mentioned uh, Michael Martin, Jordan Peterson. Unfortunately, even though I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan, I think he's fallen into the same trap of thinking that he's got to have an opinion on everything. Yeah, Yeah, because you're going to fall into the culture wars. We all agree. He ends up just giving like Ben Shapiro redux bad takes on things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like his recent recent dust up with, you know, Pope Francis's tweet about social justice (laughs) where he goes, you know, social justice has nothing to do with Christianity. And so really? I understand that there's a certain iteration of what that means denotatively in the broader world of Catholic Christian discourse. Social justice has come to mean, you know, woke or Black Lives Matter or whatever. Uh, I get that. But then say that. Don't come out and say something inane like social justice has nothing to do with the core of the gospel. That's just silly. It was ridiculous. So, um, what we're, you know, it's, it's Holy Week. We normally post on Fridays or Saturdays. I think I'm going to post this one going into, let's say, Holy Thursday morning. But because uh, your background, Larry, and kind of the themes of your blog, um, and, you know, your whole existence is about kind of the singular importance of the Resourcemont theologians, um, you could approach this in the way that you think um, is the best way to. But I, I want to I ask you, like, why do you think these guys are so important right now? And then let's get to this Holy Saturday piece, right? The kind yeah, of the yeah. Axis Monday of, um, you know, why von Balthasar was so unique. We had, it was only last week we had John Milbank on. And our conversation took a really fascinating turn on von Balthasar, especially the untranslated Apocalypse of the German Soul, I believe. But, yeah. uh, and Michael, we'll, we'll kind of get to that point too. And some of our listeners might be looking for that continuity, but like you are an apostle in one sense. And, and again, uh, when I've met your students, Matt Cooner, we have Dan Drain, we have uh, uh, Matt Brown and others I've met, 
Um, they're doing great work. Tell us a little bit about why this is meeting a need, why you think it's so important, and why you find the energy to keep on sharing this message. First of all, I think Resource Month Theology is important because it is uh, deeply traditional. I think Catholic theology is, is not traditional enough. And now that sounds you know counterintuitive, but that's the gist of it. The problem with, for example, the neo-scholastic rendition of St. Thomas Aquinas' theology that reigned supreme in the 20th century and had a sort of hegemonic control over the Catholic Academy isn't that it's overly traditional. It's that it was not nearly traditional enough by focusing so intently on a very narrow uh, scholasticized interpretation of Aquinas. They had so, you know, there was this sclerosis in the arteries of the church. Uh, you know, very little blood was getting through that wasn't filtered first through the lens of all this stuff. So along comes De Lubac, along comes a Chenu, along comes a Daniel Lu, along comes a Guardini, a call it up, going all the way back even to, to Moeller and, 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 uh, and Shaben, and, you know, that all of a sudden the, the sources of scripture and the church fathers has now exploded into the consciousness of the church due to increased study of those things in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. A lot of it had to be filtered because a lot of the scripture scholarship was coming from liberal Protestant Germans that had a lot of enlightenment biases against the supernatural and so on, an overly naturalist. Nevertheless, they did open up certain legitimate avenues for studying the Bible through a, through a more historical lens, a contextualized lens. And that then changed also our view somewhat of divine inspiration, what we mean by the word of God. Then you lead into the church fathers, which were also being rediscovered. And the resource mount theologians are saying this, Aquinas is great. We love Aquinas. For example, Balthazar quotes Aquinas more than any other author. But we need to read Aquinas in the way Aquinas himself was historically contextualized. And that was as the inheritor of the writings of the church fathers and, and St. Augustine and Maximus the Confessor and people like this, to read Aquinas through the lens of patristic and scripture, not through this later lens of the Thomistic commentatorial tradition. And that then required a complete change in the methodology of theology, and in fact, the language of theology. Read and compare, for example, the prose, the theological prose of someone like a Romano Guardini, or even a Henry de Lubac in his book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism, and compare that to the prose of a scholastic like Laborde or Lagrange, both of which are fine, <laughs> both of whom yeah. are fine thinkers, but they read like a phone book or a, or a yeah. logic manual. Mm -hmm. I studied those guys in undergraduate seminary. And I can tell you this, I was a bright young guy in terms of book learn. I got me some book smarts. All right. When I was, and I found that stuff boring, intolerable, true, but boring. So mm -hmm. boring is almost can't be true. As David Schindler said to me once, stuff this boring <laughs> can't possibly be true. And, and it, it, not that he didn't mean that it wasn't true on some level, but yeah, on, on a real level, it isn't. And so this is why I think resource month theology is so important and why I've devoted my life to it, because it is broadening our understanding. And Michael Martin can appreciate this too. There is a deep undercurrent of sociological understanding. Absolutely. You know, and maybe you could then talk to this a little bit, Michael, about, you know, for example, my friend Jenny, Jennifer Newsom Martin just came out with a book from uh, she teaches at Notre Dame 
on the on the influence of Bulgakov, Soloviev, and Bedayev, and other Rosh, Russian sociologists on the thinker or, or, on Balthazar's thinking. Yeah. And I would say Bouyer was also very influenced by the sociological tradition. But it, maybe you can comment on that better than I can. That, <clears throat> well, actually, we talked. This, this came up in our conversation with with John Milbank last week, and. Uh, and, I, and as, as I mentioned then, you know, my background, my doctorate is in English literature, but I was focusing on religious literature, in particular metaphysical poetry. And, and when I found John's book on De Lubach, The Suspended Middle, I told John, it offered me a key. I said, this is the piece that's been missing because my, my expertise is in 17th century uh, um, religious literature from England. And that was the key because that the Lubach, what he was writing in Surnaturel, for instance. And then I, around the same time, I bumped in, I had uh, one, I had the volume from The Glory of the Lord by von Balthasar on lay theologians. So it's because I read it about Slovia decades ago. But then I read the first volume and those first 30 pages, and it's an introduction. What's the, how's, what's the first line? Beauty will be our starting point. That's right. <laughs> I mean, those and and I realized, I mean, you read that, and I felt like Edith Stein when she read uh, the autobiography of Teresa Vavilis. This is the truth, <laughs> because mm -hmm. this this is it. I mean, and why didn't and I you know, I went through you know forty thousand years of Catholic education, <laughs> and never, <laughs> I never heard about this, right? Yeah. I, I get we I still got was getting even in a progressive college I was at I was still getting the filtered down neo-scholastic boredom in yeah. me tears model of 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 what Catholic theology could be but then I read you know when I when I saw this and it and you're right this does open up uh, this, this sociological dimension and I think and tell me if you think this I'm off here but you know the kind of slogan of of nouvelle theologie theologie uh the Return to the sources, right? Right. And, and I and I can't help but think when I hear that that term of, of Husserl, when Husserl said around the same time, to the things themselves. So there's yes. a kind almost a, a phenomenological impulse that undergirds it from from what I can tell. And and I see this in von Balthasar, and I I think I see him as a little bit Goethe haunted. Oh, very much so. Yeah. That's yeah, where yeah. my first introduction to von Balthasar very briefly was, uh, well, no, I knew the name and I honestly read a bunch, but it was uh, when Front Porch Republic was doing a series on kind of seminal thinkers. It was your uh, your crony there, house there, who said, you know, Rahner was a Kantian and von Balthasar was a Goethean. And I thought that yeah. opened a lot for me. You know, mm -hmm. go ahead, Michael. Balthasar, Balthasar himself made that same point. He said, sure, basically, yeah, yeah. if you want to know the difference between Rahner and, and me, it's that Rahner begins with Kant, I begin with Goethe. You know, mm -hmm. and, and, and that does say a lot. The it fact does is say a lot. And I think that, I mean, I, even Goethe, I mean, Goethe himself is a is an extraordinarily sociological thinker. I mean, if you look at the end yes. of Faust Part Two, with the, when the Mater Gloriosa shows up, the Mother of Glory, I mean, it's almost the title of Balthazar's book, right? And this, yeah, so yeah. the sociological dimension comes in there and, uh, and, and you see it in Novalis, but it but it it, it come it comes through all of the the theologian uh, the the Novel theologians it, it, I've seen. It, it's it's in all of them, and it's in Vatican. I mean, you look at the teaching on Vatican II, 
everyone talks about, oh, Vatican II has not been fully realized. And now we're all rushing into the, we're all Germans now, into Weg and all this kind of crap, uh, which Vatican II never once mentioned. I'm deeply suspicious of all of it as a kind of Joachim Fioriism run, run amok, a kind of ultramontanism. God's doing a new thing, which apparently is completely <laughs> opposite of the old things. Uh-huh. No. To me, the key to Vatican II is this sociological element where the church is described and revelation are described as a mystery. Mm-hmm. Mystery. That's the first word. Revelation is presents to us a mystery. The church is a sacrament before it's a perfect society. It's the sacrament of the presence of Christ in the world. So there are sociological underpinnings of it. To me, the reason why this is important is because this is precisely what charts the course between the false progressivism that I was just kind of spoofing. You know, now is the time on sprockets when we dance. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, yeah. and 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 then the old rad trad stick up the rear end Lagrangian kind of nothing mm-hmm. past you know 1950 is good. The reason why it charts a middle path here is because what, what race and dwelling in sociology and mystery and sacrament, what the racehorse monk guys are, Im, are implying here, and I think this is important, and then we'll get to Balthazar's Holy Saturday because it's part of this, is that in many ways that the church's magisterial interpretation of revelation has been overdetermined. And I'll just I'll say that bluntly that I agree with that. I think there is an overdetermination of revelation oftentimes in Catholic magisterial teaching. And that has to do with an inflated sense of the Pope as the Oracle of Delphi. You know, every word that passes from him goes into the Acta Apostolica Sede. Oh, this is magisterial now. Um, You know, and it becomes so you need these massive tomes to describe to you what it is the church has taught right down to the minute details of everything. Uh, And I think you know, you, you then you get race. The reason why Racehorse Mont was so suspected then was because they undermined this overdeterminist to a great extent. Along comes a Balthazar, all right, and he goes, "Okay, we've got this tradition of the harrowing of hell. We've got this statement, and you know that he descended into hell. We've got this statement, you know, in the letter of Peter, and he went down into hell to preach to the souls that were trapped there, and so on. And it has been traditionally interpreted by Aquinas and others that he was just going to the, in a sense." not the hell of the damned, but the kind of Sheol or dark shadowy vestibule to hell where the righteous dead, the patriarchs and so on, were waiting for Christ to show up. Christ shows up. And so he sort of kicks open the doors of hell, slaps Satan around, grabs these guys by the collars and drags them up into heaven. Okay. That's the harrowing of hell. Uh, And Balthazar looked at that and said, that's not Christological enough. That is not profound enough. That is to treat hell as a non-Christological category. The fact of the matter is heaven and hell are both Christological categories. They, pa- they both pass directly through the existential crisis and decision that happened inside the Sacred Heart of Christ during his hour, whatever that mysteriousness means. Here we're back to mystery, okay? And that Christ <clears throat> descended into that because Christ is that in some sense. And, and, and therefore, Balthazar says, what was Christ doing? Well, he was simply experiencing the solidarity with the dead, solidarity with the damned while he laid in that tomb. And that constituted, in a sense, the furthest distance from God that a creature can get. And Christ experienced this 
estrangement from God as distance and alienation in, the, in its extreme form. Thus, Christ has gone to the lowest pits of the low in order to retrieve the lowest of the low. Nothing is unretrieved. This is ultimately the Balthazarian view of Holy Saturday. It's not this superficial, I'm going down now in triumph before I rise from the dead to retrieve these poor lost patriarchs. I'm down here to save everyone. And that then, of course, leads to Bas Dürfen der Höfen, his book that's mistranslated, Dare We Hope, which simply means what may we hope for is the better translation. Mm -hmm. What are we allowed to hope for? Where he says this then opens up the possibility that we can at least hope for the salvation of all. Mm -hmm. So when we pray, when we pray on Holy Saturday, what my prayer is to, is to enter in, in a spirit of, of deep wisdom, deep sociological meditation, to enter vicariously into Christ's vicarity, and to, in a sense, take on to the extent that we can, by offering up our own sufferings, the sufferings of the damned. Now, this has caused, of course, every rad tread in the universe to, you know, you know, have digestive issues. Uh, Why know. do they find it so hard? Why do they find it so hard? So again, let me break here. That was beautiful, Larry. Beautiful. And again, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a broken record on like young people and this era of like COVID and what it did to young people. But, you know, so we can now say that Holy Saturday, this period of dark waiting, it's a reality. It's a, we can have a phenomenology yeah. of Holy Saturday now. Young Absolutely. people are a Holy Saturday within a Holy Saturday, meaning a particular crisis for young people within this time period that seems to be, uh, you know, really, really dark. And the only thing you can offer people is waiting. Um, I watched a movie this weekend on a plane back from Savannah, Georgia with my wife. It was called, oh God, I think it was, it was a one uh, first name of a lady, Janine or something. And it was, it was a story, but uh, you know, we dealt with some of the problems of our time in this movie, but there was a guy who, there was a lady who lost her husband in one of these senseless wars we're always getting involved in. And uh, she just wasn't able to take care of her kids. And so the, her father-in-law was taking care of the kids. And then a counselor from the military, the father-in-law went to see a counselor from the military and just said, this lady has to move through the sadness. You know, the, the, the lady, the wife, wasn't even responding to her own kids. She just has to move through the sadness. And the father-in-law is like, how long, how long? And the lady says, we just don't know. But I love that, you know, that there's a, sometimes a period that all you can do, Simone Weil gets this so wonderfully, right? Oh, all you my. can do is abide. All you can do is abide, you know. Simone Weil is so important. And Mike, I, hopefully you can send this to me. Again, mm -hmm. if if you recognize what I'm talking about here, but yeah. a few years ago, after I first met you, it was either you or John Gribowich sent to me something you had written about empathy and how important the empathic element is in in the Christian life. Do you remember what article I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I tend to think that you know Simone Weil on putting yourself into another person's place. You know, that let's take out heaven and hell for a while. Like I'm always telling people, let's bring it down to grassroots. What does what? And I want to ask you about holiness. We're going to come to that because you talk about the universal call to holiness. A lot. Yes. But when everybody, you know, and I got a quote from Coventry Patmore about saints, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about sanctity? We got to start getting real about this stuff. But, the, you know, for Valentin Tomberg, you know, the afterward written by von Balthasar, there's this wonderful notion of sin as me, real, you, shadow, right? And Simone Weil offers the counterpose to that, the most beautiful thing. In her essay on the, you know, the right use of attention uh, in the study of, you know, school studies, we'll get into that. We're going to do Simone Weil with David Cayley next week. 
but on the right use of school studies towards you know developing the attention. Anyhow, she tells, I always tell people that let's take the Catholic mythos of, um, you know, and I don't mean to take this too seriously, you know, that we die, we get into heaven. St. Peter's looking at us and saying like, you know, what'd you do? Did you give money to the poor? Did you, did you say your prayers? Simone Weil casts it all this worldly using the grail legend. And she's asking us like, what if to me, I'm going to transpose Simone Weil. Larry, you die, you go and um, you meet St. Peter. And instead of saying like, what'd you do? He says, Larry, ask me the right question to show that you've learned to live a truly human life, which is also yeah. a divine life. And that question for Simone Weil, I don't want to put you on the spot, Larry. The question for Simone Weil is, what is it that you are going through? Such that if in, once in our life, we can eliminate me real you shadow and say, Mike Martin, what are you going through? Like when Bonnie was suffering with cancer, it's, it's natural for us to say like, oh, I, I had somebody who suffered from cancer too. I know what you're going through. Simone Weil would say, shut the F up. What is it that you are going through? Empathy. Right. And if right. once we can ask, you know, so eliminate me real you shadow, the great thing about romantic love and why we need to talk about it so often in our time is it's right now we have this two sparrows in a hurricane type of mating, you know, two lonely people. Is that the same thing that Dante had for Beatrice? You know, when all of a sudden he could say, when we, when we, when romantic love is real, we do get that liberation from the bondage of self, right? That she is. So what is she going through? It's a sense Coventry Patmore talked about the rash oath of virginity that constitutes love's first falling. The first, you know, love is not conquest. It's not smothering the other. It's like when you fell in love with Carrie, when Michael fell in love with Bonnie, I fell in love with Amy. It's like that she is. What does she think about something, right? And that, you know, we're so in danger with this stinking transhumanist stuff. David Cayley, Ivan Illich are brilliant on this in gender because when we water that down, we lose all this sense of otherness, right? That what is... What does the other think? Um, but yeah, that's empathy is the whole deal. To be fully human is to ask somebody, what is it that you are going through, right? I absolutely agree. And looking at Michael's take on this as well, uh, it, it, it pertains to, on the, if, you, if you read uh, Balthazar carefully on soteriology, De Lubach mm -hmm. the same, uh, to a great extent, I would say even more, Ratzinger, what you begin to discover, there's a subtle a subtle redefining of what it means to be saved, to be a Christian, in other words. And it, it is away from this individualistic sense of reward, uh, penances, working off my personal sins, and so on. That's all part of that whole edifice of reparation and sin, and, um, which all is fine. It's legitimate as far as it goes, but it just doesn't go way far enough. It's and it's somewhat is what it is. Yeah, it's and, it's a, and it's also it can be a bit masochistic mm -hmm. uh, and a bit Manichaean. The fact of the matter is salvation is both a gift, but a gift that then imposes upon us a burden. And mm -hmm. it, the burden of discipleship isn't, oh, it's so hard to be moral. And, uh, and, and then the meaning of taking up your cross isn't just some bad shit's going to happen to you now. So hang on, kids. It's no it means you're going to participate in the very vicarious atoning act of Christ that are, as St. Paul says, our sufferings make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, but there's nothing that is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So what does he mean? What he means is our participation in it is precisely what is lacking. And he asks us to share in that. Therefore, the Christian vocation is not to save my soul, the Christian by, by myself, the Christian vocation is to empathetically enter into what are you going through? 
okay, to be pro nobis. Christ was the man pro nobis. If if the man Christ shows us what God's inner essence as love is, it is essentially pro nobis turtles all the way down. Okay, <laughs> that's like what that. it is. Mm-hmm. It's pro nobis turtles all the way down to the foundations of being itself. And that, therefore, our existence as Christians is defined precisely by substitutionary atonement, vicarious suffering, empathetic entering into the joys, hopes, as Gaudium space of the other, of the other. And only in so doing can I be saved. Mm-hmm. Only in so doing. Only um, in so it, doing. Only in so doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe Michael can speak a little more to that. Uh, but I, I think this is absolutely key, and it's certainly absolutely key to Balthazar's understanding of what goes on on the cross, what goes on on Holy Saturday, uh, and then, of course, obviously, the resurrection as well. It's very interesting in, in, in Theodrama uh, 4, where Balthazar is exegeting the book of Revelation. He does this distinction between uh, the lamb who was slain, who, though resurrected, continues to have his wounds, Versus the fact that the beast, you know, the Antichrist has a wound on his head, which then gets miraculously healed. And then there's no longer any side of it. And what Balthazar then says, I mean, that goes to show that that the essence of sort of magical religion, all right, is that it it doesn't transform anything from within. It's just sort of superficially makes things go away in this sort of temporary way. And a gee whiz, snap, crackle, pop. Oh, look at that kind of pyrotechnics. Uh, whereas the Lama was slain retains his wounds, which shows that the essence of the Christian existence isn't the denial of suffering or pain or sin, but it's transformation uh, into something glorious, which and wherein is also a powerful sociological mystery, because how can there be glory in pain and suffering? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has to it can only be glorious if it is in some way still deeply metaphysically grounded in this reality of the pro nobis of existence. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I go back to when Balthazar, you know, beauty will be our starting point um, because I think we, cause he, sh- you just showed how he, how he examines uh, revelation and suffering, but he, but he, but he examines aesthetics in the exact same way, right. Yeah. As a, as not only a part, well, participation, he, I mean, and, and that introduction to um, Glory of the Lord, part one, he invites us to a participation in beauty, not a, not a kind of Cartesian looking at it yeah. from a distance. Yeah. You enter into it, and that's what makes it, that's what changes it from being scholastic to sociological, right? It's no longer yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. a scientific examination, it's a participation. But he part, but the participation that he's talking about doesn't is not just confined to aesthetics, but it's con, uh, connected to suffering, to everything. And I think I know you you experience this, Larry, right? Because when you when you work a farm, you participate in both birth and life, and or in all three birth, life, and death. You participate in that. It's and yeah, and yeah. you and you develop a reverence for it, especially if you do it on the smaller scales like we're, we're doing. Right, you you're, you cannot help but develop a reverence for the creation, and the creation is characterized by suffering, but also by joy. Right, so that's right. You participate in that, and that's I mean that's not the gospel message. I don't know what is right, 
Oh yeah, and, and, and I think and I and I think further. I think von Balthasar and and you see you see this in Teilhard as well. And I think a lot of times Balthasar is is cribbing from, from Teilhard, but but trying not to, and from De Lubach, but trying not to get in trouble while he does it. Right? Well, I saw it happen to those guys. I'm not going there. Oh yeah, uh, but yeah. but he but I think that that's what he's what he's seeing, and it's what Teilhard does with the Omega point. Right? That's the whole idea is. It's not just my salvation, it's the salvation of all and in all, right? So that's where Christ is. Yeah, and you bring up Taylor, which is also another, to bring it back to Mike's original question about ressourcement theologie, is the, the, the Taylor issue shows that there is actually a very legitimate pluralism of thought within the ressourcement movement. So, for example, Henry de Lubac was a fan of Teilhard de Chardin, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, and and pushed his thought with some criticism. But Hansos von Balthasar was extremely critical of the thought of Teilhard, which he saw as overly evolutionistic in a smooth sort of way, without without any kind of an opening for the Paschal mystery of the cross uh, as a kind of rupture of, of, in other words, he's Balthazar's great enemy. I think in his theology, if you want to, someone once said to me once, if you want to understand any great thinker, begin by first asking the question, what is it that they most fear? And when you figure out what it is that they most fear, then you will understand what motivates them to write anything at all. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that Balthazar really hated was Rahner's theology of grace which he thought was overly smooth, where, you know, every structure in the human mind, transcendental analysis, all that was already always already this fully engraced sort of thing, which is why Rahner had trouble with the theology of the cross. His soteriology was simply exemplarist. You know, his theology of the cross was simply exemplarist, that God doesn't accomplish anything on the cross other than to show us that he's always already reconciled to us to begin with. And Balthazar had a problem with the smoothness of all of that, mm-hmm. the, the loss of a sense that something happens on the cross, that with Christ something is, there are old wineskins that are being ruptured, that human nature is both fulfilled by Christ, but also in the process expanded in ways that hurts. Okay. And, and right. this is, this was his fear about Teilhard, all right, that there is an overly Ronarian element of smoothness there. And, and so I'm not, I don't want to get too far into those woods. The point is, look, Balthazar and De Lubach disagree about Taylor. I like personally, I love Taylor, but you know, and I'm a Balthazarian. It goes to show there's a great pluralism of thought in the race. movement that you also did not find in the, in the neo-scholastics. No. And I, I think, you know, when you talk about Ronner too, the, um, that smoothness for me, I always, I found when I was reading Ronner, I just didn't like it. And I think smoothness is a good word, overly smooth. It didn't seem well, real. Too easy, right? It's too easy. But yeah. And yeah, that's where yeah. uh, Fergus Kerr in his book, Theology After Wittgenstein, it finally opened the door for me because he saw them theologizing from, you know, a huge theme of my writing at Front Porch Republic is this notion of the vast distances of outer space. And the other one is like Archimedean points. You know, we're always trying to extricate ourselves from the hurly burly of the world to pretend that we, you know, we didn't come out of our mother's womb surfing and have to figure it out in the hurly burly. <laughs> but, you know, but Ronner theologizes from these kind of this rootless, fleshless distance, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and again, I'm going to say you too, and maybe it's me too, but like working on a farm, keeping our hands in the soil, we're going to find it harder to accept those. And it's associated again with, 
too much isolation in the university, like the ivory tower. Theologizing from the ivory tower is Karl Rahner. Theologizing from the hurly burly is Gertian. Yeah. It's Mike Martin. It's Larry Chow. You know, Larry Chow. Yeah. I want to say one thing too is that when we're talking about beauty, um, why your writing is so, you know, why it hit a moment too is um, it was Leon Bloy, and I want to bring him up a little bit in a different context about saintliness, but in holiness. But he was the one uh, who said, you know, truth must be clothed in beauty, right? And that's a single yeah. condemnation of the neo-scholastic manualist tradition. And I'm going to quote Father Gerard here too, Larry. You know, you're a damn good writer. And that's one of the reasons you're popular too, right? Oh, well, thank um, you. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> uh, it's it's just know, great. The thing, let's go back to Ronner for one second too, yeah. because I think it's instructive of what you were just talking about, about getting back to the soil and stuff. Ronner frequently in, in his writings will talk about modern man. Modern man can no longer believe the following. Modern man can no longer do this <laughs> and do that. When it's very, very clear what he means by modern man isn't modern human beings taken as an aggregate that he's studied in careful depth through various sociological forms of research. No, what he means is my secularized confreres in German university life can no longer believe any of this stuff. That's well said. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and so you always have to take it as a grain of salt whenever Rahner says, well, you know, and, and Augusto Del Noche makes this point as well. Del Noche says that, you know, modernity is chiefly characterized. He says this at the beginning of an essay in the Carlos Lancelotti's collection, you know, the crisis of modernity. And, and I think it's the chapter on secularization. He says, modernity is characterized by the following question, quote, we can no longer hold the following. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> All right. It's just, that's really good. No need, no need to argue. No yep, need yep. to present evidence. It's just well, that, we're we're modern, and so we can simply no longer accept X, Y, Z. Well, and there's that. There is that. It's a weird personality trait, and I see this. There's this one uh, Catholic blogger who despises me, and I will not mention him. But he starts off almost. Who is it? Mention him. Oh no, give me a clue. Okay, go ahead. Go on. Go on. Go on. Well, he talks smack about me recently, but anyway, but he starts almost every uh, post with "We must." Yeah, yeah. Right. We must. I mean, that is that's that's yeah. and you see that so again, and Christ Rotter, is crucified between two theologians. Thieves, right? they, yeah. they they project the you know, it's it's a kind of pontificating, right? Where can't you just shut up and observe, right? Can't you just well, yeah. So I'm always suspicious when people start with the... things like we can no longer hold or we must. You want to you want to say, what, 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 who's this? We do you got a turd in your pocket? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. come on, uh, please be. Sp why don't you just say this is what I think? Yeah, that's OK. I've got yeah. a question for you both, like what you would think. So, you know, and I think I'd have to I challenge myself. So for a lot of our listeners here, you know, kind of beating up on the red trash, beating up on Ronner, Ronner with these like we no longer can hold but there is something of an evolutionary world. So we do understand the rad trad, you know, aversion to that. And then we all agree that the answer isn't saying nothing changes or nothing evolves or something. Both of you, I think for our listeners, because this is kind of an Axis Monday, you know, when I was, I was impertinently talking over Michael, but you know, Jesus crucified between two thieves here, right? You know, the, uh, the people who think and believe in inevitable progress and those who believe that, you know, nothing can change. How do, how do you both, or how do I think we describe kind of an evolutionary worldview where things change, but it isn't say Ron Arian and so forth, or Larry used the word, you know, that for Teilhard, 
you know, it was just too smooth of an evolution. How, why do we need unsmooth? You know, let's break that open just a little bit. I think our listeners would be interested. How about you, Michael, first? Well, I think, um, well, theology and philosophy, I mean, there, there's, there's a tendency in science, there's a tendency to, um, well, there's kind of a logical positivism, like we have arrived at the truth finally. And those, everybody who went before us was, was a benighted rube. Um, but what there isn't, <clears throat> and especially in theology, I mean, theology right now, is, is, it seems to me in general, is is a discourse <laughs> where where you have all the answers already given to you and you have just have to find out new ways to get to the answer <laughs> you know so but what i don't see and i think this would be interesting um because if you look through the history of music for instance um and if we look at science you know science is is a a discourse of discovering truths about nature you can say right and so it's not like those just truths just showed up all of a sudden. <clears throat> you just figured out a way to to observe them and to measure them or whatever it happens to be. But music's not like that. You know, you can't say bluegrass or, you know, jazz was waiting there to be discovered in the universe. Right? There was there was a there's a different impulse that creates this kind of this kind of music, right? Um and for too long, I think even though you know theology is called queen of the sciences uh, but our understanding of that term sciences has become more materialistic as time has gone on and i think there um and this is what you see in you see it in uh Berjayev, for instance you see it in when balthazar i think he's really getting there in glory glory of the lord you see it in bulgakov where there there comes into play in their theology uh, well, playfulness for one thing, but also yeah. creativity, and it's not yes. like they're making up stuff. They're just yeah. uh, it. And this is what I wrote about in one of my books. It's I, I think the the great image for me, poetic image of this, is John Baptist, who I argue I think in a what book is that? An incarnation of the poetic word that you know, in a way, you can say John the Baptist calls Jesus out from the future. You know, when he, and and which is to me is the kind of paradigmatic image of what uh, creativity in the Christian context needs to be. John Zazulis, the recently yeah. deceased, calls yes. the Eucharist the memory of the future, right? Yeah. The memory of the future, Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't want to overtalk Michael if he has more he wants to Go say. Ahead. I want to hear you. I, I, I'm glad you introduced uh, the the notion here of musicians because that's my thinking exactly. First off, my criticism of radical traditionalism, as I said earlier, isn't that it's overly traditional. I think they're misnamed. Uh, I think actually they're modernists mm -hmm. uh, of, of a certain kind that they buy into a certain enlightenment notion of objectivity and reason and so forth. And so dogmas have to be these strictly propositional, utterly clear sort of statements of truth that you can then deduce in a very logical succession, this airtight system and so forth. This is actually this, this need for systemization and deduction and logic and objectivity is, is a very enlightenment based project. And is simply the flip side then of the progressives that look at that and say, well, all of that truth that you hold is so objective is simply 
historically conditioned and now everything gets it's Heraclitus on steroids uh, from there on. So in other words, okay. So what would then be my, my view of, of the tradition of, of change of things that are not overly smooth and yet still in some kind of continuity. And that would be this, this, um, analogy with music, uh, take for example, jazz, someone like a miles Davis, for example, could was so immersed in the world of jazz understood jazz traditions jazz structure, jazz genres of various kinds so well, inside and out, backwards and forwards. He had lived it and it had become, in the words of Scholastic, connatural to him. That then gave him an ability to riff, to develop, to, in a sense, go off on tangents mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. be creative while all the stuff's keeping a foundation in this thing called jazz. He certainly, no matter what he was riffing, was not doing country music and he wasn't doing heavy metal. He was doing something called jazz. Likewise, this is what I meant too about our tradition being overly determined magisterially, uh, that it is, in a sense, limited jazz to one particular kind of jazz and then developed all kinds of at the Thomistic jazz and then developed all kinds of doctrines directly related to Thomistic (laughs) jazz. Okay. Mm -hmm. Along come the racehorse mon thinkers. And their point is this, if you deeply immerse yourself in this mystery, that is Christ, if you deeply immerse yourself in it, you now then are like that jazz musician. You can now riff creatively as Balthazar and others do on the main themes of, of revelation. And you can do so with, this is what mad makes me so angry with trads who criticize Baltimore. Oh, he's teaching heresy. Well, maybe he is. I, I don't care. Don't you understand at this point? I don't give a damn because he's not, he's not proposing this to be church dogma. <laughs> he's not challenging a church dogma. What he's saying is let's think about this. Look mm-hmm. at yeah. this. Let's, let's delve our minds into yeah. this. Can we step our big toes into this and let's 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 go with this. So, in other words, my point would be this. The magisterium has all these teachings, but for the most part, well, up until the modern world, those teachings were not thematized. They're sort of like an overgrown garden. They're all over. It's a Thomistic garden. And yet even using St. Thomas, there was no real hermeneutical thematization of this deep thicket of teachings. And I think what the Second Vatican Council and Ressourcement theology represented was the thematization of that entire jazz revelational tradition uh, to carry the metaphor forward. The thematization is a deep and radical Christocentrism and a theological anthropology that develops out of that Christocentrism. When you develop that, what you begin to see, therefore, is that the form of revelation, and this goes to beauty and Balthasar leaning, the form of revelation is cruciform, is cruciform, which means that there's always going to be an element of rupture uh, in the midst of all the continuity. There is going to be an interruption. And so I, I think that I have developed what I call the hermeneutic of kenosis. People talk about hermeneutic of continuity, hermeneutic of reform, hermeneutic of, of rupture. I prefer to speak of the hermeneutic of kenosis, which means a rereading of the entirety of tradition through the lens of the cross. And mm-hmm. whatever, it, whatever does not bespeak pro nobis, empathetic, cruciform existence is a distortion of doctrine. 
And whatever does speak of that is an affirmation of the centrality of revelation. And then we can riff on that to our heart's content mm-hmm. with, with certain limitations. So that that I, uh, is is my take on all of that. Really great stuff, both of you. you know what? And Larry, when you were started talking, I thought it's a name we haven't brought up in this podcast ever, but I know somebody I'd like to have on, uh, but Philip Reef, the great social critic, right? Uh, oh, married yeah. to Susan yeah. Sontag. His book, I don't know if it was his last, but his book, Charisma, right? This is another great hinge point. Charisma for, I think he's going to say Max Weber, you know, maybe along the lines of a disenchantment thing. You know, I walking around campus, you can see people who presume they have charisma just because they're just kind of grabbing different parts and globbing it onto themselves, including genders and genital organs and things, right? And that's charisma. Um, and that's not charisma. And on the other hand, for our neotomists, right, they're just going to be fuddy-duzzies because they haven't done anything new. But Philip Reef, in his book, Charisma, portrays Jesus as somebody who is, again, to your point, Larry, so deeply rooted in the tradition that he could take it in new ways. And that's charisma. You know, so, um, you know, here's here's our same categories again, the worst being the corruption of the best. This kind of assembly or Mike, you know, you mentioned creativity as a central one as opposed to cleverness. Michael, in all your books, you're talking about, you know, movies made by committee, you know, Disney movies, which we're gonna call <laughs> clever, you know, rearranging the parts and it's fun and we can enjoy it, but it's masking what would be analogous to everything we're talking about is the creative, you know, disciplined, rooted in a tradition and then expanding that tradition. So we have our rad trads who might be rooted, but they just don't have the cojones to, to take it somewhere. And then we have people who are clever, you know, fake charismatic and, uh, you know, and our rad trads too. They're, you know, they're always wishing to, you know, let's use the critique of the conservative standing in the middle of the road to progress and saying stop. But uh, our progressives, you know, uh, it seems like they want to watch the NBC news and then kind of read the Apostles Creed and just make some unholy marriage between the two. Right. And it, it's 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 clever. It's clever. Yeah. But it's it well, yeah. just not out of me. Right. And I think that's the important part. So speaking of aesthetics, for instance, you know, and I I appreciate and I really appreciate the the attraction for the reverence and aesthetics of the traditional mass. Sure. I totally get that. That's why I spent 25 years in the Eastern Church. That's why Larry and I would be in, probably in a ordinary church if there were one within a couple hundred miles because it's beautiful. That's where Larry goes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and because beauty will be our starting point um but you know and because and let's face it the the way it's usually uh, performed the notice ordo mass is a is a uh, very often an infomercial for jesus um yeah but, it's banal but what i think happens though i mean this is why i think to attend to the to, to the aesthetics because if you if that happens all right and this is where you you know you, that so, it softens the hardness and this is what you see so often in so many uh, rad trads or or especially progressives even right and you see it in the ortho bros as well there's a hardness that comes with it and I think it's a hardness that's born of fear because the you know I need rules I need somebody to, I need a daddy mm-hmm. yeah right I need yeah. a disciplinarian um, but what happens with when you see um, these resourcement theologians talking about or Miles Davis or people who know how to jam, they take they start in their their rootedness in this tradition, as Larry was saying, and they bring it to the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when and, and then people are like, are you allowed to do that? Is it still jam? 
right? Is it, <laughs> did he have permission? Did, did, he, did he apply for a grant first? Um, but in fact, when I was talking with, when we talked to John Milbank last week, I mentioned that uh, conference, both John and I spoke at Cambridge last, last fall on uh, Pavel Florensky. And I talk, and I don't know how, how they took it, but I said, can we just admit that, you know, some of the stuff he was saying was probably heretical and move on, <laughs> you know, because yeah. yeah. according to the received tradition, it's not too know, difficult to, folks, to the yeah. Aristotelian categories that are dogma, you know, there are some things that don't fit in there. Where, Ellie, where do we put this? I don't, where do we put Sophia on this chart? It's, we don't have a spot. spot. Well, it's because we don't have received tradition did not provide us with that spot but i think this is why we this is what the, the yeah. task of theology is in, in in a phenomenological um approach yeah, to see so, what is and don't you think you're a farmer michael so we've been talking about what advantage does farming give you in this and i'm we you know there's animals but also then pruning tomato bushes has been the bane of my existence right mm -hmm. because uh you get these indeterminate tomatoes you have to prune them I always end up with something that looks like Charlie Brown's tree at the end mm -hmm. because Christmas trees, I end off pruning off too much. So the, the, the point is you, you learn and develop this sense of pruning. So my point about the magisterium and our tradition being overdetermined is that the task of theology today is to a certain extent, the task of pruning the task in some sense mm -hmm. of burning off to get back to the, to the true essence of things, the main vine, the main essence of what it is we need to be paying attention to. And if sometimes, you know, that requires some radical pruning, then, you know, then, then so be it. Uh, yeah, for example, I, let's, let's take the descent into hells. Holy Saturday is coming up. I mean, it's based on one obscure statement from Peter, St. Peter, and then it's in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. And of course, then there's a big debate about, well, is that just Sheol or what is it? Or is it the hell of the damned? And then certain various ideas begin to develop. And then you get this very well-developed theology of the harrowing of hell. And, oh, it was just going down to do this, uh, you know, to retrieve the patriarchs. But that in itself emerged out of a set of theological developments in the early church that pertain to what it was that Christ could or could not have experienced in his, in his divinity through his humanity. What was his knowledge of things? Uh, was he keeping Jupiter in its proper orbit rather consciously as a human, as an embryo? Uh, what sort of knowledge? So all of a sudden this elaborate this elaborate artifice begins to develop in the church about the structure and strictures on the humanity of Christ, what it was he could experience. And therefore, there's no way he experienced the hell of the damned because that would taint his divinity. And <laughs> It would imply an almost uh, you'd almost have to go a Nestorian route to figure that one out. Uh, and we don't want to. So in other words, is this you then you end up with this grossly overdetermined theology within the church that says it's a heresy to even think that Jesus would descend into the hell of the damned. Right, that's a right. heresy. So that's why I say if Balthazar is guilty of heresy here, I say good on him. Good on him. And I mm -hmm. take heresy seriously. But and precisely because I take heresy seriously, I look at something like this and say, if that's a heresy, it's stupid because it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. And it's an example of how overdetermined we've become doctrinally in so many ways. Yeah. How about how about we move the conversation a little bit 
Um, I'm loving the word. Let me say I hadn't the the word overdetermined, Larry. It's very uh, it opens a lot for me. When you first said it, I was going to say say it in a different way, say it in a different way. But it's now becoming very real to me, and it's opening up a lot of doors. But I, I would like to move to a little bit of reverence, and I want to focus too on so many of your writings, Larry, at, at kind of like key moments in the argument. You you kind of you lead up and you say this could be solved if we acknowledge the universal call to holiness, right? Right. right. And so. Um, you know, and that's where I was thinking of Leon Bloy, you know, Pope Francis's, I believe, his first homily after becoming uh, Pope. He he quoted Leon Bloy with that famous quote, you know, there's only one true sadness, one great sadness, not to have become be a, a saint. saint. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think holiness, too. I have a feeling when we were talking about the ordinary, the ortho bros and liturgy, yeah. my my thinking lately, and I think David Cayley on Simone Vey will get into it next week. I might be moving in a different direction. Michael, your article I wrote. I, I commented on your wonderful article. Everybody check okay. out Mike Martin's, but he's talking about pan. And then I, um, what this article is, a strange, is this? I've not read it. It just came out this morning. Uh, oh, you okay. go to Mike's. Yeah. Go to his face, uh, Facebook page. You'll see it. Okay. But uh, the death of pan and that whole thing. And, you know, and I heard the word pantheon too. I have this, I have this war against proscenium arches lately, whether I see them in an iconostasis, I see them in an old altar rail, or I just know the power of the proscenium arch. And I tend to think it's probably, fading in our time, whether it's the Anglican ordinary or anything, but for another time. But so this, I think we can get at it um, because when we use terms, Michael helped me a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about the word reverence, Larry, saying that when he was a Waldorf educator, every year Michaelmas would come around. And uh, Mike said, you know, when, when, and it wasn't even a story about St. Michael, it was another story, maybe about St. Francis. But when those young people came in and they knew they were going to hear the same story, there was a look of reverence. Um, holiness. You know, we have people, they could have wildly divergent ones. Most of them scare the shit out of me, you know, what they think about holiness. Um, but so I thought I'd begin on a kind of a conversation. These words, it's going to hinge a little bit, but I was looking at Coventry Patmore, who came up with the conversation with uh, John Milbank last week. And he's talking about, you know, what he thinks he sees when we're talking about saints. And it's uh, Angelico Press from The Rod, the Root, and the Flower. Um, He's saying, I'll just do a couple snippets. It's really a brilliant passage. Um, There's nothing outwardly to distinguish a saint from a common person. A bishop, he says, for example, or a dissenter will, as a rule, be remarkable for his decorum or his obstreperous indecorum and for some little insignia of piety, such as the display of a mild desire to promote the good of your soul or abstinence from wine or tobacco or jesting or small talk. But the saint has no fads. And you may live in the same house with him and never find out that he is not a sinner like yourself, unless you rely on negative proofs or obtrude lax ideas upon him or so provoke him to silence. I'll skip a bit. He says, he'll give you, the saint will give you an agreeable impression of general inferiority to yourself. You must not, however, presume upon this inferiority. And he goes on, if you compel him to speak about religion, he'll probably surprise and scandalize you by the childness and narrowness of his thoughts. And he goes out, he goes, I've known two or three such persons. And I declare that, but for the peculiar line of psychological research to which I am addicted, Patmore says, and hints from others in some degree akin to these men, I should never have guessed that they were any wiser or better than myself or any other ordinary man of the world with a prudent regard for the common proprieties. I once asked a person, he writes, more learned than I am in such matters to tell me what was the real difference. The reply was that the saint does everything that any other decent person does, only somewhat better and with a totally different motive. Um, you know, so this notion that in our time, I think 2000 years 
after the incarnation. And also we have 2000 years of the, you know, the saint making process where you needed religious orders, you know, and how many women with eating disorders did we canonize and so forth. Larry, you know, I want to go to you. You're calling the, the universal call to holiness. Um, I haven't gone through everything and you're not avoiding anything, but I'm always saying for you to unpack this a little bit for young people. So they're not aspiring to some otherworldly, like weird, nerdish, um, power obsessed sanctity. Well, renouncing the world. Right? All right, yeah, first right. off, I'm going to plug my new book, Confession of awesome. a Catholic Worker, just put out by go. Ignatius Press, because I do address this question in my book. So great. You Super. kids run out and buy this book. Anyway, <laughs> Mark Brumley will now be happy that I plugged the okay. Ignatius Press book. But um, uh, in, all, in all seriousness, I do talk about the universal call to holiness in there. It's sort of the linchpin, cool. the thematization of the whole. Uh, let me let me back up and say a few things. Number one. Uh, as a Catholic worker, this is the ultimate motivation for, I think, for Dorothy Day and Peter Moore. And people mistake their motivations as ultimately philanthropic or simply the poor, or whatever. No, their, their primary motivation was they recognized that there was a need for a radicalized understanding of holiness in, in our time today, and that it needed to apply to everybody. They presciently understood this long before the Second Vatican Council reiterated the universal call to holiness. Now, we'll get into what holiness is in a second, but the, the fact is, the reason why they wanted to emphasize this wasn't because we're radicals, we want everybody else to be radicals because we're nut jobs. Um, it was their, their understanding, the deep and profound understanding, that was an understanding that was shared by literally scores, if not hundreds, if not thousands of Christian intellectuals uh, during the 20th century. And it actually goes back to Newman, clear back to the 1830s as well. This recognition that modernity is characterized by a profound unbelief. It's constitutively organized around a naturalistic, reductionistic, flat, metaphysically flattening, anti-supernatural worldview that is a corrosive acid on all. The, that's why wherever Western, modern Western civilization has advanced, Traditional religions, traditional wisdom, traditional sociology has been destroyed as everything is flattened by this westernizing steamroller. Therefore, what Dorothy has understood, Joseph Ratzinger understood, Guardini understood this, the Resource Monk guys understood this. There is no stasis capable in the church anymore. As Ronner said, to, now to push Ronner, the, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he won't be at all. Uh, C.S. Lewis has the analogy of, of the we're all like eggs right now. We either have to hatch or go bad. We're, we're not going to be able to stay eggs anymore because we live in we live in an era where stasis is no longer possible because the cultural middle has been destroyed. The Christian cultural medium has been destroyed and replaced with an unbelieving medium. So you're either going to move forward, as C.S. Lewis says, in the spiritual life, or as I say, you're going to end up looking downward at your gut or your crotch or your veins. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what we're left with in the modern world, which is why now holiness is no longer an option for the average Christian. Only the holy Christian is going to survive. And this is Rod Dreher's point as well in the Benedict option. Only the, the holy Christian is going to survive the nihilistic tsunami, the singularity, the transhumanism, the technopoly that is of the surveillance capitalism that is upon us. You're, you're, you are going to succumb to the crushing weight of the Leviathan of corporatism, surveillanceism, mm -hmm. technologism, and so Michael Martin could talk on this better than I can, uh, or you're going to move forward along a spiritual holiness path. 
Now, as you correctly then in your quote point out, that path doesn't have to be Manichaean. It doesn't have to be abusively ascetical. It doesn't have to be a sort of white knuckle denial of all good things. I tend to think there, all of those approaches to asceticism are deeply tainted uh, mm -hmm. with a kind of anti-world dualism, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't subscribe to them. Therefore, holiness is going to look, here's the deal, holiness today is going to look like ordinary behavior, like we've never seen ordinary behavior before, because the rest of the world has gone insane. If you want to say, for example, that it is a wretched bigotry, horrible terrible thing that allows me to deny you free speech. If you dare say a man can't get pregnant or that a woman can't have a penis, if you dare say those <laughs> things, you're a horrible bigot. What has happened then is that reality and sanity have fled. And thus uh, Jean-Luc Marion makes this point where in the future, and he's not the only one, Chesterton has made this point and others have made this point. Sanctity is simply going to be what a sane person looks like. Right. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. A sane person looks like. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it's going to put us at odds with the insane world. So holiness is going to be, in a sense, a doubling down on all of those most natural of human virtues and most natural of human goods, music, family, joy, friendship, farming, milking goats, <laughs> whatever, fishing, hunting, reading poetry, listening to music. Um, you know, eating a good meal in a piazza someplace. I mean, these Half are all, friends. Yeah, yeah exactly. You yeah. know, the, the, or, or uh, to put it more bluntly, procreating the old fashioned way, mm -hmm. right? Love making the old fashioned way, courting people of the opposite sex, the old fashioned way, marriage, the old fashioned way, mm -hmm. child rearing, the old fashioned way. Uh, that's all going to appear as a gross and offensive insanity. It's interesting, yeah. right? And I'll, and I'll shut up. The first Christians were charged with atheism by the Roman elites, as you well know, and, and as being antisocial because it's, it seemed as if the Christian emphasis on the pro nobis human being, the cruciform structure of our existence, that this, that, that this seemed to run contrary to all the great virtues of the Roman Imperium, mm -hmm. uh, that it, it seemed to undercut the great social ordo of Rome with its nice, neat little pantheon of gods ordered to the cult of Blut und Erde and triumph, uh, that the Christians were uh, upsetting that apple cart of power and entertainments and enjoyment of bread and circuses. And so they were antisocial. And, and, and therefore atheists. And I think that's, I think that's where we're headed. That's yeah. where we're headed. We're there. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Go well, ahead, I think you, you use a good word. I mean, the word sane, right? From the Latin. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Health. Healthy, right? It well, reminds me of wholeness, holiness, yeah. wholeness, the same thing we're getting at. Yeah. And, 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 and I think all those things you just mentioned there, it's true. Hunting, gardening, having a family, these normal things. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know. Um, I've noticed over the past of the, these three and last insane years, probably the thing that makes me happiest is to see a pregnant woman at the grocery store or a family, yes. yeah. a young family. I'm like, oh man, all right, let's go team. Uh, it's affirmation. And it, and it reminds me, you know, talking about this, these kind of simple things. And I want to call I like seeing, like, I seeing two young couples walking across campus, holding hands. You just don't see it anymore. All right. So if I see them smiling, enjoying each other's company, holding hands, I just, I start levitating a little bit. Me too. <laughs> but, but 
so what, what, I, what I kept thinking when you were speaking, Larry, is uh, George Herbert's poem, Love Three, which was super important to Simone yeah. Day, where heaven is both a Eucharist, but it's also a very simple meal, mm -hmm. right? Which yeah. is a beautiful yeah. moment where, where Jesus is waiting on, on the soul. So just have a seat. We can, you know, we'll take care of it. I don't, I don't belong here. Oh, you know what? I got to take care of it. Have a seat. It'll be all right. You know, and it's very simple in that way. And I think, um, you know, and George Herbert, the speaker in the poem, is like, no, it needs to be harder. <laughs> you know, uh, like a lot of people yeah. do, right? Yeah, it yeah. Need needs to be or more ornamented. Yeah. It needs to be harder. Yeah. See, this Sh is shouldn't I shouldn't I crawl across the desert on my knees first? And yeah. I should, yeah, exactly. And I should mention too, on that list of things that we'll do with a certain sanity is also to attend Eucharistic liturgy with with regularity and to not really care that much what form it might take. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm all in favor of beautiful liturgy. I attend an ordinary liturgy, and I'm often a critic of Novus Ordo liturgies, but I also have to admit that some of my most spiritually fulfilling liturgies I've ever attended in my life were Novus Ordo liturgies that were very Spartan. I think the genius of the Novus Ordo liturgy is what it's often criticized for, which is its Spartan mm -hmm. quality, its streamlined quality. But when done with, therefore, to me, the best Novus Ordo liturgy is the low mass, is because it almost seems that that's what it's designed for. So you know that, like at the National Shrine in Washington, D.C., in that crypt church downstairs, I'll sometimes go to the very early in the morning mass, no music, whatever, everybody thinks quiet and the simple novus ordo liturgy is is, is just beautiful mm -hmm. and then the and the the old tridentine liturgy is beautiful too uh, but the fact is also and this is to your point about the george herbert poem it's it's in some sense why can't we just attend liturgy and to treat it in its simplest form this is a meal i'm sharing with christ mm -hmm. right? That's where Coventry Patmore again said, you know, the Eucharist is a meal so that every meal might become a Eucharist. And now that we, yeah. you know, we're talking about those regular things. If we have a culture where yeah. nobody's having family meals yeah. anymore, you know, that I see so many of the liturgy wars talking about something that's one step removed from what the action is. Yeah. That a real Eucharist, this is going to be Ivan Illich again, you know, but it's a real Eucharist, at least for this time is sitting down with somebody and breaking bread and sharing it with them. You know, unless we can arc these two things, you know, Jesus took the Eucharist because it was a common thing. All yeah. those things you you broke apart so well, Larry, with, you know, transhumanism and all uh, capitalism, you know, they, they've ruined that. But, you know, if Jesus was here today, I think he's going to say, you just got to start having meals again, people. Like, stop all this yeah. arguing yeah. about all yeah. these, like, which form, right? How about the form yeah. of oh, having God. breaking bread with a friend, right? Yeah, you know. Exactly. And it's going to take place yeah. in a circular thing like a pantheon, which is yeah. like pan, Michael Martin. Yeah. to Emmaus, right? Yeah. 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 Not everybody likes a Cirque du Soleil, Cecil B. DeMille liturgy. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I don't. I don't. I don't either. But not, not everybody likes high liturgy. Not everybody likes low liturgy. Not everybody likes guitar liturgy. I can't stand pianos at liturgy, but I mm -hmm. know people that love pianos at liturgy. You know, and, and so... I hate to sound like Rodney King, right? Can't we all just get along? But there's a, there's a sense of what, what prompted all this was, I think, Michael's brilliant introduction here of the George Herbert poem. Mm -hmm. You know, that at some point, part of holiness has to be an appreciation for the simple simplicity of, the, that's a bit redundant, the, the simplicity of things yeah. Yeah. in their essence, in their purity, and to, and to realize, okay, let's set the ideology at the door 
I'm going to enter into this Novus Ordo parish and okay, it's got octogenarians and diaphanous dresses doing streamers and liturgical dance. And I want to gouge out my eyes with knitting needles, <laughs> but I am going to sit here and I'm going to simply appreciate the fact that I'm at the Lord's Eucharist. Yeah. You know, and just I went through a great homily by a really tremendous priest. We had him on the podcast, Father Ed Dillon, who's a good friend. Uh, John Gribwich met him. We had lunch with him and William Cavanaugh one time. It was just great. No, that's a great lunch. But he was speaking, I think, after like gay marriage passed in New York. And he, he was just homilizing. He just wondered, you know, these things happen in civilization. It was in a homily. He goes, you know, and then this happens. You know, these things come into culture and this and this. And there's a decline. There was a little bit of Oswald Spengler in there. And then he's a poet. And he was 80 years old at the time. And he goes, and then. You know, a young man falls in love with a young girl and they they go on a date, <laughs> something like that. You know, and it's that, yeah. you know, Larry, you're, you're talking about the over-directedness, you know, and this, yeah. we have all this complexity and that cycle of just coming back to the simple again. I think we're all agreeing, you know, that we need to, we need to find that, you know, and it is sacramental when you see a young couple laughing, holding hands. Um, it does make yeah. me levitate a little bit. It is sacramental for people. If you can see young people, we just had some students go down to a Franciscan uh, retreat house associated with St. Bonaventure. And I, I couldn't be there this year, but I know that they were going to be planting some carrot seeds and so forth. And, um, you know, and we need to, uh, Belloc has, you know, just a great essay. I, well, everything he wrote, the prose was just unmatched, but it's just called on sacramental things. Right. And he's just talking about, he sees in a park, you know, a young granddaughter run to his grandfather, you know, uh, and then they embrace, you know, and Belloc's essay can just bring us all back. What are we talking about when we're talking about sacraments and so forth? You know? Absolutely. You know, that I'm not anti-intellectual or high church or any of that no, sort no. of thing, but modernity represents, uh, my book shows this, my blog is all about this. Modernity, and people can disagree with me about this, but modernity represents uh, the single greatest challenge that the church has ever faced. And I mean that. I for mean sure, that. for sure. Well, well, Arianism. It, it, it Go ahead, Michael. desacralized the universe. That's why. Desacralized. Which, which absolutely desacralizes everything. Which, you know, the Arian heresy, at least the church is dealing with people who believe in a sacralized universe. You're still dealing with people with a religious sense. And it's the mm -hmm. same in the Reformation and so forth. Today, you're dealing with the, such an attenuated to the point of being utterly occluded, religious sense, that what does the church do with that? So in some sense, uh, the ornamentation of the church, though beautiful and great, I, I'm a sucker for a great Gothic cathedral and stained glasses mm -hmm. and incense mm -hmm. is the next person. Modernity does, nevertheless, and Ratzinger points this out well, represent a, a stripping of things, a stripping like Christ. Here we're in Holy Week. Christ stripped of his garments, okay? And spat, it struck me at the reading of the Passion from Matthew, and the, the one thing that really stood out for me this time as I read, heard it read to me again was that the guards spat on Christ's face as, you know, they, they first took his clothes off, then he was naked, then they put the robe on him, and then they spat on him. And, and I thought, what humiliation. Uh, and this is what the church is probably going to have to go through in the Western world, at least, an yeah. utter humiliation. And it's going to be spat upon. But that, that also, as my friend David C. Schindler points out, represents an unbelievably exciting opportunity for us. Yeah. You know, you know what are, struck me in Matthew, Larry? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'll just end by saying, therefore, we are given a great opportunity to, in a sense, engage in a re-riffing on the theme once again in yeah. beautiful and unique ways. Yeah. We, we talked about sophiology, and I was uh, 
in the passion, Matthew, I'd never heard it, but I want to put not a shout out, but like sophiology again, like the feminine, the divine feminine, you know, for Rudolf Steiner, who had a lot in common with von Balthasar, you know, on this Holy Saturday piece, he called it the mystery of Golgotha. There was something about connecting with the divine mother, you know, the underworld and so forth, which some people think the next 2000 years, America still has to find its own Catholicism. You know, we've had a thousand years of the sky God and everything, you know, that we might have some different themes being overturned, like soil gets overturned. But the language from Matthew's gospel, and I think this applies to Holy Saturday, I had never heard it. I have to go back and make sure it was there. But I think I read it myself. The women were facing the tomb. Yes. And it kind of blew me away. The women were facing the tomb, you know. Um, and that ties together so many things. Holy Saturday, Mike's work on sophiology. Um, oh, yeah. And again, it, you know, and again, we would say modernity is looking for the male-female polarity to be, you know, just a homogeneous Reunited. And it presents us with this wonderful opportunity for creativity. I would direct people's attention to a short but really wonderful article. Uh, It's online uh, in the National Catholic Register by Jonathan Liedel, who's one of their lead guys, who's been Mm -hmm. in Berlin and Germany lately covering this synodal way. And he has this wonderful article in there about Berlin and how there's a kind of thriving Catholic rather interesting and creative subculture in Berlin right now that's being made possible by the fact, number one, Catholicism has not never been big post-Reformation in Berlin. Berlin is an mm-hmm. overwhelmingly Protestant, Protestant city, yeah, utterly Protestant. So there's never been a strong Catholic presence post-Reformation. And then on top of that, uh, the communist Marxist influence, East Germany and all that, and Berlin was partitioned. But on top of that, Berliners are some of the most unreligious people in all of Europe right now. Some people call it the atheism capital of Europe. It is. Yeah. And so the point is, now in the midst of all of that, all right, the, the non-Catholic presence, the secularism, the unbelief, all that, all of a sudden, here you got the stupid, stupid German synodal way going, the irrelevant, I call it, the irrelevant synodal way, mm-hmm. which is just a wink and a nod to want to baptize the sexual revolution, the modern secularity. Here you have in Berlin, and Lidl points this out, this thriving, really interesting kind of bohemian and hip Catholic subculture. And the hipness of it is precisely Eucharistic adoration and, and you know, old ma- the old Latin mass and crazy coffee shop, bar, pub, Catholicism going on in Berlin that's starting to sort of ignite a fire and catch on. And so this is what I'm talking about, about where it's both a crisis of faith that we're confronted, but we're now also we're now presented this wonderful opportunity to really be free to be reinventing things in creative ways. What an amazing ending. I'd never heard of that. I could have predicted it, that it could come from Berlin. You know, it's always been, you know, after World War II, America just put its imprint on Berlin as like the prototype of what the world was going to be. So, uh, yeah. Um, Nothing good could come from Nazareth, they say, right? It could be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is great. Larry, Larry, you mentioned the synodal way. We'll have to have you on another time to talk about that. But uh, this this was really tremendous. I think it was it was timely. Holy Week. It was entertaining. Uh, great conversation amongst friends. Larry, thanks for all you're doing at this time. Thanks for your work. Oh, thank uh, you. Blessed Holy Week to everybody. And um, and we'll see you again next week on the Regeneration Podcast. Any closing words, Mike Martin? Check out Mike Martin's blog. Promote it Check again. It's blog. a new blog on Substack. It's the, the Druid Stares Back on Substack. Yeah. And wow. I thought, I, I got to check this out. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to send you a link. Oh, you know, one final thing is uh, when I was kind of just re getting together with Don Balthazar and Holy Saturday myself, 
I was having my coffee. I typed those words into my Google on my phone. And I think we can all agree that sometimes you can be put on, it's a reverse image of a mirror. You can be put on to amazing things by reading people who hate what you love. So is that one Peter five, you know, somebody like just trying to shit all over Holy Saturday. But um, they were saying, you know, von Balthasar alluded to this and he alluded to uh, de Lubach alluded to the sermon by the, the Polish genius, Miskiewicz. And it's just, it's about the Pantheon. And I, I read it and I'll send it to you, Michael, but everything, the one Peter five hated, I was just like, wow, this is an embarrassment of riches of stuff I have <laughs> yeah. to read. Right. Uh, God yeah. bless you both. Uh, happy Easter, joyous Easter. And we'll see you on the flip side. God bless everybody. All right. God bless. Thanks a lot. Take care.